you want to turn over in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 49, through chapter 13, verse 9. So, we're going to flip there in your Bibles. And fire in Scripture can sometimes be used for purifying, as you know, and sometimes be used for judgment that will be coming upon a people. And I have to tell you, in this passage, this is a hard text I'm going to be talking to you about today for just a couple minutes. But it's, it's a true text, and it, it's, it's kind of this black drop, uh, backdrop, backdrop of God's judgment upon which the beauty of the gospel gives us so much hope. But, and sometimes in Scripture, we look at the diamond. And sometimes the emphasis is on the backdrop in light of the diamond. Today, he tells us a fair amount about the backdrop. So listen to what Jesus says as he talks about what comes, what, what is involved in his coming. You know, I was thinking about this. If you, if you kind of run through the scripture and look at the times when Jesus said, I have come to, you know what comes to my mind? I have come to seek and to save that which was lost, right? I mean, there's a whole bunch of just wonderful things. But this text kind of takes you back. Matter of fact, sometimes I was talking to somebody about this the other day. They said, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. Jesus says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And you're thinking like, what? I thought, like, didn't you come just do all the saving stuff? And here's what you'll find, folks. All of history comes to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Is the incarnation of Christ the greatest expression of the love and grace and mercy of God? The answer to that is what? Yes, culminating in the cross. Is it also a statement of this is God's final word to people in the person of his son? And what happens if you reject that? Judgment. It is the greatest opportunity, and with great opportunity and privilege comes greater culpability. So Jesus says, in my coming I have come to bring fire. Now, I'm going to translate the next section a little bit differently. I don't want to get Greeky on you, but I, and if I had time, I'd make the argument, but I won't. Let me just read for you, I think, a better way to translate verse 49b. I, I came to cast fire upon the earth. A lot of translation says, and how I wish um, it were already here. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that it's probably better to translate this way. And what do I wish if it is already kindled. That's very, very important. Jesus is saying this. With my coming, there is the fire of God's judgment. And if it is already kindled, which means it's coming, what is it that I wish above everything else? Do you, do you see? The answer comes in the next verse. Now, I have a baptism with which to be baptized. Today, we have a whole host of people that are getting baptized. And again, we didn't try to work this out. I was talking to Tim about this this week. Here we have a passage that talks about baptism. You guys can be baptized today because Jesus was baptized in his suffering on the cross. And so he says in this passage, I have been baptized, now I have been baptized with, wait, let 
he said again, now I have a baptism with which to be baptized and how I am distressed or pressured until it should be accomplished. So here's the point. Jesus says, with my coming is greater culpability. People are rejecting me. People are turning from me. What is it that I wish above everything else? That I can accomplish that for which I came, which is to be immersed in the tsunami of God's judgment for you. Do you see? Jesus, with all this judgment, what do you want? I don't want to die. But I love people, so I'm willing to die and face all of the judgment that was designed for them to take on that immersion, that tsunami. So when it's accomplished, people that accept me can go free. What you find in the Gospels Jesus doesn't shy away from judgment. But he always speaks about it with a tear in his eye. And he always speaks about it in light of the fact that there's hope. Hope for those that will trust in him. Look at what he goes on to say in the next section here then. Verse 51 do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? And then, and then you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, right? Because I'm like thinking back, didn't you say like back in Luke 1 that John the Baptist is going to turn the father back to the son, the son back to the father? Don't, don't the angels say at his birth, peace on earth with those with whom God is well pleased? So Jesus, yeah, I kind of think you did come for peace. Like, hello? And what we'd have to argue is that the peace that he offers is conditional upon those that accept him. Is there any more sweet relationship than when a husband and wife come to faith in Christ? Trust him. Christ is their Lord. They experience something in that relationship that can't be copied anywhere else on the earth. There is a peace and a turning back to one another that can only be found in the gospel. That's true. But what happens if she does and he doesn't? Not always a peaceful relationship in the home, is it? Look at what he goes on to say. I tell you, no, but rather division. From, from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. That's enough of a problem anyway, typically, isn't it? But nonetheless, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. I mean, what Jesus says is this. With my coming, I am the central issue in all of life. For those that accept me, there is peace, there is hope, there is forgiveness, there is freedom. And for families that accept me, there is the potential of a relationship so rich that it can't be copied anywhere else in the world. But you all have extended family members that don't like the fact that you're a Christian. Isn't that true? And we've all been to family get-togethers where you have to kind of explain to the kids. Now, kids, now look, we're going to go over here. Be careful what you say. If an issue comes up, let dad handle it. 
You, you know what I'm saying, don't you? I mean, because you know, you go in there and say, here come the holy rollers or whatever. I mean, they say all kinds of things like Jesus freaks, whatever. They say all kinds of things about us. It's, it's, it's part of what happens. And so Jesus says, because I'm the ultimate issue, is there peace and is there hope and is there the family of God? All true, all true, all true. But what about those that don't receive them? What about fam family members that do and family members that don't? Jesus says, because I'm the ultimate issue in life, there will be division and there won't always be peace. I guess about that time, the disciples are gulping. But Jesus isn't done. He turns his attention now to the crowd at large. He's just been talking to the disciples. He's been talking to them for a little bit. And now he turns and talks to the multitude. And he's going to emphasize again judgment. And, and here's what I think is so important. It's so important to realize this. Never view Jesus as a dispassionate, removed Prophet-like individual that basically points the finger and says, you're all going to hell and I don't care. Never, never, never see that, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to find out a little bit later, Jesus is going to come upon the city of Jerusalem and he's going to weep. And he's going to say, how often I wanted to gather you to myself like a hen does her chicks. And you would not. You don't view. I see Jesus saying this stuff with a tear in his eye. Because his passion is that people will come. But he knows many won't. So look what he says to the crowd. Strong language. And he was also saying to the crowds in verse 54. When you see a cloud rising in the west. Immediately you say. A shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day. And it turns out that way. He just says, look, when you see winds coming from the west, Mediterranean, cool. From the south, rain. And when you see it coming up from the desert, look out, it's going to be a hot, humid one. And he says, look, you guys are able to look around and say, I can figure that out. But he says, why can't you figure this one out? Look what he says. But you hypocrites, come on. How about the most important things in life? You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky. Why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him in order that he may not drag you before the judge, the judge turn you to the constable. The constable throw you into prison. I say to you, you shall not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Jesus is saying this. You can look around at the weather conditions and very clearly figure it out. Why can't you see the fact that I am here? And that all life is about me, I am God's final word of speaking to people. I am God come in the flesh. And you just, you can't see it. You're just going by and wanting miracles and all kinds. You miss it. And Jesus says, you know what it's like with those civil trials? You owe a great debt. And you haven't paid. And now the guy you owe to is taking you to the judge. 
And you haven't settled with that guy yet. You thought you could put it off, and now it's too late. He's going to take you to the judge, and the judge is going to pronounce a punishment, and you're going to go, and you're going to go in prison. What Jesus is saying here is judgment is impending. And you people, not you people, but Jesus is looking at the crowd. You people owe a great debt to who? To God. You must deal with it now. It is as if that civil trial has actually started. When I was in elementary school, you probably all had these uh, situations. Matter of fact, it was with one of Tim's classmates. It wasn't Tim, whose name will remain anonymous. But he had a way of kind of egging you on and then turning it back on you before, uh, before the teacher so that you, I would get in trouble. Uh, I'll tell you about it later. It wasn't Tim. Tim would never do that to me. But I, but I remember this particular event happened, and the guy got me annoyed, and I threw a glove at him or something like that, and he said, fine, I'm going to tell the teacher. I'm thinking like, oh, no, I've got to convince this guy before I get to the teacher not to do that. I don't think it worked, but I tried. And you, you, know, you know that kind of feeling sometimes, like, I've got to deal with it now before. Well, Jesus is saying, as bad as that is with a civil trial, how much more when it's your eternal soul? Well, the pressure's on, and some guy is thinking to himself in the crowd, i got to take the pressure off of this thing a little bit, um, because we're not as bad as other people. Uh, and he comes, look, look what happens in chapter 13, verse 1. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So, apparently, the pressure's on, and people are thinking, like, judgment, pressure, whoa, whoa. Hey, Jesus... What do you think about those Galileans that either were going up to do a sacrifice or they were on their way to Jerusalem or whatever, and for whatever reason, because we, we don't know about this from any other writings in antiquity, but for whatever reason, Pilate came along and he killed them, killed their sheep, and there was their, they were dead and the animals were dead there together. And if you know anything about Pilate, that's, very, that's not at all unusual. I mean, there's all kinds of stories about Pilate. That's like a no-brainer that he would do something like this. And the guy asked the question to say, well, you know, we're not that bad. Because we're alive. What do you think about those Galileans? Like, Jesus, what did they do that would cause Pilate to do that? And they're trying to take a little bit of pressure off of themselves. Do you see? <laughs> but Jesus will have none of it. Look what he says in verse 2. And he answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? And the guy's answer to the question would have said, yeah, isn't that the way it works? Bad things happen to bad people, right? Isn't that what it's supposed to be? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus says, I got another one for you. You got that story about human atrocity. I got one for you for about natural disaster. Look what he says. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? And in their hearts, they'd be saying what? Yeah. Those guys were walking by that tower. Maybe they were trying to fix something on the, the, the wall in Jerusalem near the Pool of Siloam. And they're walking by. And for whatever reason, that tower, part of it just breaks down, falls on them, and kills them. My, uh, my mother-in-law 
man, this goes back, I don't know how many years, maybe 15 years, I was walking down Los Angeles, I was kind of walking down the street, and they were doing some construction, and I guess they hadn't done it real well, because, you know, they put up those border walls, the, the whole thing just fell over on top of her, and she, she ended up being okay, I mean, after, you know, there's some issues, but they, you know, they had to call in squads to get everything off and everything like that, I mean, she wasn't doing anything, she was just walking down the street, man, and pew, right down on her, and Jesus says, what do you think about that? Do you think God was saying, I'm really against them? And here's the, here's the point, folks. When natural disasters happen and tragedy happens to people, it's not my place to judge and say, oh, they're worse than us and that's why that happened. I have no idea. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus says, when you see those events, rather than saying, I'm better than them because I'm alive and they're not, you know what you ought to say? That becomes a graphic reminder of what will ultimately happen to everybody who rejects Jesus Christ. When the Bible says we are born under the wrath of God, it's not kidding. And so when I see these events, instead of saying, hey, I wonder if I, I should say, God, what about me? Am I ready? See, that's what the text is doing. So Jesus says, after verse 4, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling them this parable. A certain man had a fig tree, which he had planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit and did not find any. And, and, and from Leviticus 19, we know that if you plant a fig tree newly, and you know what's fascinating? This fig tree is planted in a vineyard. That's, that's like really good. That's good soil. Plants it in there, and Leviticus 19 tells us you couldn't pick the fruit for three years. You just have to leave it alone. And the fourth year was dedicated to the Lord. And then you could start picking the fruit in the fifth year. And what we're going to find out in this story is a guy comes along in the fifth year, and it still doesn't have any fruit. And he comes back in the sixth year, no fruit. And now he comes back seventh year, I'll get it. Seventh year and no fruit. So, I mean, this has been a long time he's been waiting. Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit, because you come looking in the fifth year without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? I can use it for the vines. The gardener answered and said to him, Sir, please let it alone for this year too. Until I dig around it, put in some fertilizer. And if it bears, and if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then cut it down. And Luke stops the story there. And so Jesus looks at the crowd and he pleads with them saying, judgment is coming. Folks, I want you to think about this. Disaster comes upon Galileans and people in Jerusalem that a tower falls upon. He tells them, please, please, please turn. 70 AD, a nation is destroyed. And from that point on, we have seen time and time again disasters and disasters and things coming along. And they're all graphic reminders that there's more coming. 
There's a great tribulation coming one day. There's eternal judgment coming one day. And wherever you find yourself along the spectrum, Jesus calls to you and says, come. There's hope. You don't. These are reminders. Stop. 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 And people often just don't. <clears throat> they go on their merry way. And Jesus stands before a crowd and he says, I know what is coming. And I am willing to be immersed in the tsunami of God's judgment. So that you can be set free. So your debt can be removed. But if you don't repent. If you don't fall down before me and say, God, I want to be yours. And, and, then, and then as these people are doing to young people to, doing today, going to stand up before us and say, hey, I'm Christ. You know what I know about all you guys? You guys are delivered. You guys are set free. You guys have hope. You have purpose. There will be no judgment for you in eternity. You're secure in Christ. And that's what Christ wants for everyone. Man, if you don't know Christ and you're here today, God couldn't be any more merciful. He keeps warning us and saying, there's a limit to my patience. Come. And if you do, when you proclaim Jesus to people, always do it with a tear in your eye and always do it with hope because there's hope in Christ. Regardless of the division we face, whatever we have to go through, our blessed Lord who was baptized into that suffering, he did it for us. And our lives should reflect gratitude for that. Father.